Have your Bible, would you open to Galatians this morning? We'll be in the fourth chapter of Galatians. And the title for this morning's message is really taken from another letter that Paul wrote. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, which is a, a quote out of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. But we'll see as we go through this that Paul is uh, expressing to the Galatians that they would be imitators of Christ, fundamentally. And you and I are called to be examples to others. It ought to be our heart's cry that others would follow Christ. Not that we have a bunch of Duane Knights or something else like that, but that people would be enamored with Jesus Christ in that you have a responsibility to be an example to others in how you conduct yourself and how you live your life. Now, recall in the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians is one of those unique books that it's really one thought from verse 1 to chapter 1 all the way through. And so last week, we didn't stop directly at a chapter break. We went right through that chapter break to continue with the, the same thought. And we want to do that this morning. So let's pick it up. And I'll just sort of summarize uh, chapter 3, verse 26, through chapter 4, verse 7, to give us the context of what Paul is talking about. In verse 26 of chapter 3, he says that we are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's drawing this analogy, and he's going to continue on with this analogy between a free person and a slave. Somebody who maybe is a son or a daughter who has an inheritance versus the servant that works in the master's house. But notice, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are all equal because of our sonship or daughtership through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 27, as many of you are baptized into Christ. This is the idea of being totally immersed into Jesus. Let's be clear. Baptism is something that we are called to do but baptism does not save us. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. Towards the end of the summer, uh, after our vacation Bible school, we'll have a time as a corporate church for a public baptism. If anybody would like to be baptized, please let us know. But baptism is a symbolic thing. It's going under the water, and you're saying, I'm dying to my old self, my old ways of doing things, and I'm being born again or born anew. And the idea is that when we are immersed in the water, people can't see you, right? That's the idea, that you're totally consumed with the water. Here in this verse, it's the idea that we're totally consumed with Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say this, that there's no difference whether you're sl a slave or free, male or female, because we're all one in Jesus Christ. And in the church, there should not be any differences between poor or wealthy CEO versus the janitor, green versus brown, white versus black. We are all one in Christ. And shame on us as a church, as a church in general or universal, where we've drawn lines of distinction between because of our language, because of our skin color, because of our affluence or lack of affluence. That's not God's standard at all. We are all one in Christ. And he goes on to say that if we're in Christ, then we're Abraham's seed. Moving on to chapter 4, verse 1. Say that we're heirs. As long as a child, can you imagine, this is the idea of somebody from a wealthy family. The child knows that they're going to inherit all of dad's money. But as a child, they're growing up and they're under the authority of the, the steward or the guardian or the tutor, you might say. And although they will inherit 
everything the family has, as a child growing up, they're under the law or the authority of that guardian. But once they become a child, uh, an adult or at the appointed time that God says or the Father says in this particular analogy, then that child inherits all of the family business. And they become the person of authority. And here's the analogy. As Jewish individuals, they grew up under the law, and they were schooled by that law. But at God's perfect appointed time, we've been set free from leadership with this heavenly inheritance. And that's the theme that Paul wants us to continue on here with. So we've been redeemed from under the law, verse 5, verse 6, because you are sons of God, sent forth by the Spirit in which we cry out, Abba or Daddy, Abba Father. Today is Father's Day. And again, as we mentioned before, some of you have wonderful earthly fathers. Some of you may not even know who your father is. Or you have bad memories from how your father on earth treated you. I want you to understand this morning that God loves you as a perfect heavenly father. That if you had a good earthly father, it was just a shadow, a small taste of what our heavenly father is like. If you didn't, I want you to understand this, that God loves you, God cares for you, and wants nothing but the best for you. And our relationship with God should be one where we are able to say to him, Abba, or Daddy. He is our Daddy. And as a dad, you ought to be able to go to him for everything. The little owies and boo-boos, the things that you break in life, your difficulties, or your successes. You should be able to go to your Heavenly Father and say, Dad, I, I broke this. Would you fix it? And He is more than able and willing to do that. Uh, picking it up now in verse 8 of Galatians chapter 4. But then, so there's a connection. The reason I went through those other verses is because He says, but then. So He's continuing with the same thought. But then, Indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those which are by nature not gods. So we're talking about this wonderful relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. How much He cares for us and He loves us. And how much He's given for us. And then He goes on here in verse 8 to say, But when you did not know God, when you didn't know God, you served or you were in bondage to things that were not God. Here's the idea. The Galatians, and you and I, have to know God. If we don't know God, we place ourselves under bondage again. So this is written to a group of believers, and they were struggling with the concept of how do I grow in my relationship with God. Others were saying to them, and we'll see this as we go through this, others were saying to them, in order to grow as a Christian, you have to do certain things. You have to dress this way. You have to do certain things. In context here, specifically, he's going to talk about certain days or months that you have to have holy days or holy months. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. The idea is that you have to work your way into heaven or into a better relationship with God. And that's not the case. You are God's precious child by faith. If God saved you and rescued you by faith, when you had absolutely nothing to give to him but your broken life? What makes you think because you did this thing or that thing that somehow magically God would love you more? That's a false teaching that Satan wants us 
to live under this bondage that I have to improve. But notice this, it's really important. It's probably more important that God knows us than it is that we know him. And you might say, now wait a minute, Pastor, that doesn't sound quite right. But follow with me for a moment. It is much more important that God really knows us because we are rescued and saved because God does know us as opposed to how much we know about God. You see, your heavenly inheritance is not based upon your intellectual knowledge about God. Some of us know a whole bunch of stuff, which is wonderful. Others of us, well, we just know that he's our heavenly father and that's about it. I know Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so and that's where we're at. And it's more important that God knows us, he knows your condition, and he wants to rescue us. As opposed to, if you will recall, back in the Gospel of Matthew in the seventh chapter, Jesus is describing this heavenly scene and these people are coming forward and saying, but God, I did this in your name. I prophesied in your name. I fed the poor. And Jesus says to them, depart from me for I never knew you. How do we know God? By faith. It's important that we know God by faith. And he continues on here in verse 9. But now after you've known God, speaking to Christians, you've come to faith in Christ, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? If God set you free from the works of your flesh, the things that you tried to do that were never good enough for God, why then as a Christian are you running back to those very same things? You and I are called to live in this tremendous liberty and freedom of a relationship that we have to God. Those in Galatia were turning back to legalism. They were not turning to a new heir, in other words, a new mystery, a new wind of doctrine, but in fact, they're turning back to the very thing that they were delivered from especially if you were a Jewish person or if you grew up in a legal in a denomination of some sort. And that denomination was one that expressed that you, to be a good Christian, you have to do these things and not do these other things. It was a list of Christian rules. In order to be a good Christian, you could only listen to, I don't know, Air One as a radio station. And there's no other radio stations that ever existed. Or you could only go to a Christian movie or whatever it might be. You could only watch VeggieTales when you were growing up. And that was it. And if anything outside of VeggieTales was just terrible. VeggieTales is great. I love VeggieTales even to this day. But if our standard is what I do, I'm always going to fail. My relationship with Christ has never been based on what I do. It's always been based on what Christ has done for me. I need to respond appropriately, but it's always based on what God has done for me. So he's saying to them, to the Galatians and to you and I, don't place yourself under the bondage of works-based or a cause and effect in relationship with God. God doesn't love you more today because you showed up for church. He loves you but he doesn't love you more. Now, I'm not saying not to come to church. Please don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying you're not magically more spiritual because you're here today. 
or because others went on a missions trip doesn't make them magically more spiritual. Are we called to go and make disciples? Absolutely. But our relationship with God is based on what Christ has done for us, not on what we do for God. So one of the tragedies of legalism, and legalism could be defined this way, it's based on what you do for God. In other words, God is happy with you today because you didn't run three stop signs. You only ran one today. Somehow that God is happier with you today. And that's not the idea. Now, I'm not, I'm not endorsing running stop signs, but I am saying that our relationship with God is not based on what you or I can do. You see, the problem with legalism, or one of the traps or tragedies of legalism, is it gives an appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads a believer back to a second childhood of Christian experience. This is a quote from Warren Wisby. The idea here is, one of the tragedies of legalism is it gives an appearance. In other words, somebody says, well, the Adam and Eve didn't eat meat, and so I don't eat meat, and therefore I'm more spiritual, I'm a vegetarian, and I'm more spiritual than you are. Paul in the book of Romans gave a long discourse about whether you eat meat or you eat vegetables, it doesn't matter, you're one in Christ. If you're a vegetarian, great, but understand being a vegetarian doesn't make you more spiritual, nor being a, a meat eater make you less spiritual. But it gives this appearance. Sometimes we look at others or we admire others because, wow, look at them. Look what they don't do or what they do do. And then we're putting ourselves, when we do that, we're putting ourselves right back on a human-based experience with God instead of a faith-based Christ-centered experience. And that's where the, the fault lies. What's your hope in? Is your hope in your ability to make God happy with you? Or is your hope in the fact that Christ died, that substitutionary death on the cross, a little over 2,000 years ago, that God demonstrated his love for you, that he redeemed you or ransomed you out of your sin? You might say, but I was a pretty good person before I became a Christian. And God would still say, the, your best day was nothing but dirty, rotten rags compared to God's holiness. That's the idea. Moving on to verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. See, here's the idea. Legalism caters and recognizes our flesh by putting the focus on what we achieve for God as opposed to what Christ has done for us. Do you understand that legalism caters or recognizes our flesh, what you can or can't do, and puts the focus or the emphasis on what we achieve as opposed to what Jesus did for us? When we talk about days and, and months and seasons, I think about this. Sometimes, for some of us, we might make a point. Maybe not you, because you're here this morning. But some will make a point to attend church on Christmas or Easter. As if attending on that particular day, Easter or Christmas, is of greater importance than living your life day by day for Jesus Christ. 
in some church circles, they practice Lent, which is a season intended to set your hearts for God. But the practical thing is that people say, well, I'm going to give up chocolate bars, therefore God will love me more. And that's not the idea. God loves you. And but we need to be totally baptized or immersed in Jesus Christ, not in what you or I can do. In other religions, they have other things. In Hinduism, because they have so many different gods, there are a wide variety of Hindu festivals. And these are special holy days in Hinduism that you dedicate to worship different gods or different things in Hinduism for us as Americans, is confusing because they have so many different gods. But think about Islam as an example. Ramadan is a day, a, to, a time period, a month, to set yourself apart for God in their thinking. And in Ramadan, the deal is you don't eat or drink during daylight hours. But if you know anybody who practices that, you understand from as soon as the sun goes down, and they party all night long, in all kinds of sometimes debauchery, but they call themselves holy because they don't do it in the daylight. And you see, that's the same idea, that if we set certain days apart and say, well, this particular day or this month, I'll do these things, and that makes me more holy. The idea is that you and I must live every day for Jesus Christ, not just certain times or certain months. Some people have gone on different missions trips, or some of the youth went to summer camp, and those are wonderful things. But the heart of summer camp is not for the kids to seek Jesus for a week and then just live like hell for the rest of their school year. No, the idea is it's a beginning. It's a stepping stone. It's a stone in their life that they would continue to seek the Lord. Just like going to, I mean, I, please don't misunderstand me. Camps are wonderful. They're excellent. But the camp itself is just a stage to get things going or to reaffirm things. Maybe it's a conference or a Christian concert or maybe it's a missions trip. And those are all wonderful things. But understand, it's not about how far you traveled. It's about how much you'll serve and love Jesus. So you can go to Haiti. You can go to Mexico. You can go to China. You can go to India. But if you're not living day by day for Jesus Christ, it's of little or to no value. I'm not suggesting that you don't go on missions trips. That's not my point. My point is that we are called to live day by day for Jesus Christ, as opposed to, well, for this week, I'll be right with Jesus. As if that is enough. It's not enough. And again, it's not a man-centered idea. It's a Christ-centered thing. So you observe days and months and seasons and years. Verse 11, I'm afraid for you. Least I've labored for you in vain. Paul's afraid for them. For what? For their spiritual condition. That they've heard the gospel, they responded to it, but then they've gone back to man-centered worship or religion as opposed to Christ-centered relationship with Jesus Christ. You and I are no longer to be slaves to our flesh, no longer to be slaves to sin around us, but we are set free to live for Jesus Christ. So he's labored. It, he's, the idea is that he labored to the point of exhaustion. And the idea of in vain is that there's no fruit coming from it. That's the concept that he is concerned with. Let me give you an example. Maybe some of you have heard of this guy 
John Wesley, maybe you haven't, English theologian from England, in other words, an evangelist, a leader in the Church of England, and eventually the establisher of what we today know as the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church today, in practice, is greatly different than Charles Wesley. But Charles Wesley grew up in a Christian home. He was a clergyman. In other words, he was a pastor. His dad was a pastor. He was orthodox in his belief and faithful in morality and full of good works. He did ministry in prisons and sweatshops and slums. He gave food, clothing, and education to poor children living in the slums. At this point, does he sound like a godly man? Does he sound like a good person? Hang on. There's more to the story. He observed Sabbath both on Saturday and Sunday. He sailed as a missionary from England to America. He landed in, I think it's South Carolina, to one of the colonies to be a missionary. So he traveled, and of course, it's a lot different traveling today than it was back in his day. In his day, it meant months on a ship going across the ocean. Today, it means hours in an airplane. He studied his Bible. He prayed, fasted, and gave regularly. Now, from an outward appearance, it would seem that Charles Wesley was a good Christian man. But I want to point out a comment that he made specifically. Yet all this time that he's doing all these good things, he says that he was bound in chains of his own religious efforts. Because he trusted in what he could do, what he could make of himself, how he could make himself right before God, instead of trusting in what Jesus has done for him. Later, this is when he was in America, later, he came to trust in Christ, in Christ only for his salvation. It says, he says that he came to an inner assurance that he was now forgiven, saved, and a son of God. Looking back, on all of his religious activities, and that's how he described them, religious activities. He said this, I had even then the faith of a servant. Just tell me what to do, and I'll go do it. Though not that of a son. Because he was focused on what he could do, he did not consider himself to be in a relationship with God. He was always in fear of not doing enough for God. Now, Charles Wesley was a man that was used mightily of God and his brothers. And I simply point him out because, one, he's a dead old guy, so he can't mess up anymore. Uh, but two, he's a man who did a bunch of stuff, and then he became a believer. Do you understand? He did a bunch of religious good deeds, but he was not born again. Jesus tells us that we must be born again. You must be born anew by the Spirit. It's not how much you do for God. It's how much God has taken ownership of you. Will you allow him to take ownership of you? That's what it's about. He had faith of a servant. I'll just go do this and I'll go do that. Not that of a son. The whole context here, what Paul's describing, the last part of chapter 3 into chapter 4, is that we have a son-daughter relationship. 
Maybe some of you remember those photos from John F. Kennedy when he was president and his son would crawl underneath his presidential desk. Why did his son get to do that? Because he was a son. None of the really important advisors that would come in ever crawled down on the floor and tried to crawl under his desk, right? They didn't have that kind of relationship, but a son gets that kind of relationship. A son or a daughter can come to mom and dad in a good, healthy relationship and say, man, I messed up. Please, mom, dad, would you help me? And that good earthly father or mother will give for them, care for them, encourage, not not endorsing sinful behavior, but encouraging and exhorting them to righteousness. And that's where we are or we ought to be in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he goes on to say, and this is where I got the the title for this morning's message. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Again, this is a quote. My quote is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. You and I are called to be people that are sold out for Jesus Christ for the purpose of God using us, but do you understand that you are an example to others around you? If you have children, they watch you. It's one of the more frustrating things that you say one thing to your child, but you happen to do something else, and they notice, hey, wait a minute, Dad, you didn't. You make sure I buckle up, but you didn't buckle up, or whatever else it might be. You and I are called to be examples to others. Paul was saying to imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's not saying be a follower of Paul. He's saying, I'm going to follow Jesus with all of my might, with all of my heart, with all of my mind. And I want you to do the same thing. Follow Jesus with all of your might, with all of your heart, with all of your mind. Be consumed with Jesus. That's what he's saying to them. And don't be consumed with the legalistic Do's and don'ts. And Paul says, look, I was there. Do you remember Paul? Before he became a Christian, he was zealous. He was a religious man. Matter of fact, he had letters from the officials in Rome to persecute and put to death or in prison Christians. And that's when God caught his heart. He was doing all the right things. He was from the right family. He was a Jewish good boy. And God captured his heart on that road to Damascus. So Paul understands what it feels like and what it's like to do your best to follow God, but then not have a relationship with him. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you haven't injured me. You may have difficulties for yourself and your relationship, but you and I, we're still good. And then he goes on to say this, verse 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. This is an interesting thing. Paul's writing to the Galatians, which is a region in what is modern-day Turkey. Many people have debated, what is the physical infirmity that Paul had? Some suggested that he had malaria, that he went from the low, kind of swampy regions along the coastline, and he went up inland, uphill to drier land to help clear up the malaria. That's one idea. And when he did that, he sort of because he was seeking health benefits, ended up in the region of Galatia and ended up preaching the gospel to them. Some have suggested that. We don't know. 
Others have suggested it's Paul's eyesight, that he had some sort of disease with his eyes, and that he kind of came up to this region to get better or to help clear up his eyes, and as a result, spiritual fruit came from him simply seeking better treatment. We don't know, but we do know this. I came to you because of physical infirmities. I preached the gospel to you, verse 14, and that my trial which was in my flesh did not, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God. An angel means messenger, okay, as a messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. So here's, here's what Paul's saying. Look, I love you guys. Maybe he had malaria and they were scared that they would get malaria. Maybe he had some sort of eye disease with all kinds of pus and, and a swollen eye, or maybe there's some other thing. Whatever it was, it was something that would cause others to go, ooh, you stay away from me. But Paul noticed that the Galatians received him. And they didn't look at his outward appearance. He didn't look at his skin disease or his respiratory problems or his eyesight or whatever else his problems were. They didn't look at that. They looked at the man. And they saw the message that this man was bringing. But he received them as a messenger. What then, verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked your own eyes out, given them to me. This has led many people to believe that Paul had some sort of eye disease. And he's not talking about a practical eye transplant because that was impractical at that time. But the idea is that they cared so much for Paul and for his suffering that if they could, if it would have benefited Paul, they would have given up their left or the right eye to help Paul. And that's the level of relationship that Paul has with these Galatians. And it's the level of relationship that we ought to have towards one another. That we would, our hearts would break when others are sick, physically or spiritually. Verse 16. Have I therefore become to you an enemy because I tell you the truth? So Paul is saying, look, we have this tremendous relationship. You didn't reject me because of my physical infirmities. Matter of fact, you would have given me your eye if possible. But don't reject me because I tell you the truth. Remember, these Galatians were running back to a legalistic approach to God. They're saying, I'm good with God because I come to church on Christmas. Or I'm good with God because I went on a missions trip. Or I'm good with God because I went to Bible college. Or I'm good with God because I did this or I did that. Or I don't do this and I don't do that. And Paul is saying and God is saying to all of us, it's a relationship with God not based on our human efforts. Shame on us when we think that God owes us something because we held our breath. Or because we gave up something. We gave up chocolate bars. I'm not saying that going on a diet is a bad thing. I certainly could go on a diet. I'm saying it doesn't produce spiritual fruit just because you give up something. You are a son and a daughter of Jesus Christ by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can't improve upon that because you gave up chocolate bars or you went to church on Easter. We are called to live for Jesus Christ each and every day. And God doesn't owe you more because you don't drink or you don't smoke or you don't chew or you don't go with those that do. 
God doesn't owe you anything more. He's already given you everything, life and godliness. You and I have a tendency because of our flesh to say to God, I will do this and therefore God will love me more. We're called to holiness. We're called to live for God, but we do that through the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit, not by human effort. God doesn't love you more because you serve at VBS. I want you to serve at VBS, please. But don't do it because you think you're earning brownie points with God. Do it out of a great love for God, a love for God's children. Not because you're going to earn brownie points. Not because some other Christian is going to look at you and say, wow, you're really spiritual because you came to VBS. No, come and serve because you love Jesus. And you love Jesus' precious little ones. But it's a relationship with God. It's not one of a servant or a slave. And that's the whole concept that he's driving at here. So you didn't reject me because of my physical difficulties. You would give of your own eye if you could. Then don't get mad at me because I am speaking the truth to you. You see, the truth of God, the truth of God's word sometimes is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to have somebody say, what I really like, God says don't do. What I really, I take my pride in because I am this. I don't whatever. And when you take your pride in that and somebody says that's proud in the wrong thing, it hurts. But I've given all of my life for this. And God would say to us, it's nothing. No matter Your very best efforts are like dirty, filthy rags to God. That's why we need somebody to redeem us, to ransom us. Because we, in our own efforts, are so sinful, inadequate, unable. But God is more than able. He wants to pour out blessings upon blessings in our lives. So don't treat me like an enemy, Paul says, because I tell you the truth. Verse 17, they zealously court you. Now, these are those who want to put Christians under bondage. You can't be a good Christian unless you wear long skirts. And for us guys, that might be a little bit awkward. Okay, But in some circles, it's something like that. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to have a bumper sticker on your car or else you're not a good Christian. Or you've got to have this version of the Bible versus that version of the Bible. That's not the point. Paul understands what it means to be zealous, but zealous without love is empty. Many cults use the same sort of technique. They say, hey, be part of our select group. You know, we're the chosen people. Come be a part of our church. Come be a part of our select group. And we do this thing. You know, we only wear Nike tennis shoes and therefore God loves us more. That's a lie from Satan, but appeals to our flesh. Our relationship with God is based upon what Christ has done for us. So it is, it is good to be zealous in a good way, but only when I'm present with you. In other words, they were showing off for Paul. Hey, Paul's here. Hey, let's be sure to be zealous in, in all that. But in reality, they were excluding 
other Christians. So they court you with zealousy. They want to exclude you. They want to make you part of their special group. I find it interesting, especially at large evangelistic crusades, that there's always some people outside that are saying, whoever that preacher was, he didn't give you the whole message. Come be part of our select small group and we'll tell you the rest of it. And that's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Especially those large evangelistic, whether they be like a Billy Graham, a, a Harvest America, things like that. They're telling you to go get involved in a local church. They're not trying to attract people to themselves. They're trying to attract people to God and for the kingdom of God to grow. That's what we need to be like. If you run across a coworker, a friend, or somebody else, and they go to a different church, but they're following Jesus, praise the Lord. I'm always inviting people to church, and if they say, hey, I've got this church, I say, great, go there. Most of the problem is that people aren't going or they're not living out what they say that they have faith in. During the school year, we have kids that hang out in front of the church, and we are always inviting them, or I'm always inviting them, hey, go to church. Oh, I have this church, great. <laughs> you, two minutes ago, you weren't acting like you were a Christian, though as you were cussing and smoking and making out or whatever else. But I'm telling you, go and be a Christian. If that means going to that church, great. If you don't have a church, then you're welcome here. Come, be part of our church. And that ought to be our attitude, that the kingdom of God would grow. Verse 19, My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Now, he's not trying to insult moms who've gone through labor, okay? But it's this idea that he's using these metaphors. I feel like your spiritual mother because I shared the gospel with you at first. I saw you begin to respond to the gospel message. I discipled you in the faith. And so Paul feels like this mixture of a mother or a father and that he labored for them to bring forth them in Christ. That's the idea and the concept that they would be in Christ. Christ. We need to be involved in people's lives in that same way. That Christ, may our main goal be that Christ will be formed in them as well as in you. This conveys the similar idea that Paul also wrote about in, Ro in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's those that God chose to be his children. He also, at the same token as he says, yes, be a part of my family, he also says, be like Jesus. You see, sometimes when we talk about legalism, people will say, well, you can't put off legalism because how else are you going to control people and make them act and think like good Christians? How do we make and act people think like good Christians? by pointing them to Jesus and having Christ in their hearts. It's not a set of rules on the outside, but it's a heart being transformed by Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. So it's never about somebody has to be just like you, but it ought to be as you desperately follow Jesus on a day-by-day -day basis that others would see it in you and then imitate that. We all have difficulties. Maybe your difficulty is your devotional time, a time set apart for God, and you can come along to somebody and say, hey, look, this is how I do it, practically speaking. You know, the way my schedule is or whatever else, 
This is the way I found that works well for me. I show up for work 15 minutes early, but I sit in my car until I have a time to pray and read my Bible. Then I go into work. Somebody else does something else. Maybe they take their lunch break. Maybe somebody else is an early morning person and they love to get up early to be able to do that. And they set a time to be apart with God. Maybe somebody else is a night owl and they say, well, in the middle, you know, I stay up late and that's my time. But it's the idea that you can practically give people some ideas of how to do something like that. And please don't misunderstand me. We need a devotional time, but it's about who you're being devoted to as opposed to how much you're doing. It's not about how many verses you've memorized. It's how many of these verses get into your heart and then you live it out. So it's about this living relationship with our great God. You see the pattern, the biblical pattern, for all kinds of biblical ministry, whether it's children's ministry, youth ministry, missions, evangelism, whatever else, this is the pattern. The Word of God falls from the lips of whoever the minister is. You share with somebody a Bible verse, a biblical concept. You share those words. You're an active part of that. But it's the Word of God that you're sharing, the message of God's Word that you're sharing. And it goes into the heart of the believer. But then the Holy Spirit takes over and impregnates or germinates that seed, the Word of God, that it would bring forth fruit in that person's life. So it brings forth fruit. Notice, biblical ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, couples ministry, missions work, evangelism, all goes this way. The Word of God is shared with somebody else. Verbally, you share with them what the Word of God says. It goes into their heart, and then the Holy Spirit takes over, and it bears forth fruit in their life. Okay, That's how God works. It's the same manner that works in all ministry. The Christian pastor or minister needs to be that same way, somebody who would share God's Word with others and then allow the Holy Spirit to work in their life to bring forth that spiritual fruit. Paul here is likening this ministry that he's been involved in to like birth pains. In other words, he labored, he traveled, he went, endured hardship, but his heart was for them. He shared the good news of Jesus Christ with them, but the Holy Spirit is the one that brought the conversion. And then he carried them in his heart. He prayed for them, he discipled them, encouraged them, all from a heart filled with love. And now he's concerned because they're starting to backslide. They're starting to turn to other avenues. And Paul is brokenhearted that they would disobey, not Paul, but the word of truth that Paul had shared with them. And so he's sharing with them as a father, as a spiritual mother, and saying, please don't go down this pathway of false religious pride. Instead, I want to, he says here in verse 20, that I would like to present, be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. I, I don't want to be that chastising spiritual father. Instead, I'd rather be that nurturing mother to you. But when you're rebellious, we all know this as parents, as kids. When we're rebellious, we need that chastisement. We need that correction. But it doesn't flow from a heart of bitterness. It flows from a heart of great love. A godly teacher, a godly coach shares with the students or the teammates, you're doing it wrong. Here's the right way. 
And that's what Paul is saying to us. You and I don't fall into a legalistic do's and don'ts, cause and effect. God will bless you if you do these things. God wants to give you all kinds of spiritual blessings, but it stems from a relationship with him, not what you've done or you failed to do. It's a principle. It's a godly principle. It's about a relationship with Christ. It's not based on what you've done or haven't done. So here's my takeaway. When you fail to do things God's way, is God more mad at you? No. Is the relationship between you and God broken and damaged? Yes. How do you repair it? God, I am sorry. I messed up. Please forgive me. And what does God say? I forgive you. It's not based upon actions. But then he says, I want to come into your heart, change the way that your mind thinks, the attitudes of your heart, so it's no longer an external list of rules and regulations. Instead, you have a heart for me. In other words, Jesus summed up all the law and the commandments with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up all of the 600 plus rules of the Old Testament. It's about loving God, having a loving relationship, living for Jesus day by day, not just simply on certain days of the week. So my question to you this morning is, are you in love with Jesus Christ? Are you radically born again of the Spirit? Some have done all kinds of horrid things in their life, and they recognize they desperately need Jesus. Others of us have been a pretty good person. Others would say, yeah, you're a good guy, you're a good girl. You've done all kinds of good things. Maybe you've done things, missions trips, youth camp, whatever else, but you haven't been born again. And then if you're not born again, you're missing the whole point. It's not about serving at VBS. It's not about going on missions trips or summer camps. It's about you and I being born again. Now, if you have been born again, but you've slipped into, well, okay, I messed up on Friday, but I'll come to church on Sunday, and that'll make up for my Friday mess up. Understand, that's not how God's economy works. You come to God absolutely, totally surrendered to Him and say, Jesus, change me. Lord, may I have a passion for the things that you have a passion for. And if you don't have a passion for them, then ask God to change that, that He would revive you cause you to be born again to a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Not based on what you do or you don't do, but based upon this tremendous love relationship with God, what we call the grace of God. You see, please don't misunderstand, in all of my criticism of the things that people might do, I want you to understand this. God still wants you to serve at VBS. God still wants you to go on missions trips, to go on to summer camp. God wants you to do those things, but with the right heart and attitude. Not one of those things, well, I'll serve at VBS and maybe I'll get a promotion at work. That's not how it works with God. It's, Lord, I will serve you no matter where that is, no matter what the group of people are, because I know how much you love me and I just want to love others. And if that means I work in a slum, then that's what I do. If that means I serve at VBS with kids that have sticky hands and put their hands in my hair or whatever else, then that's what I do. 
that means I go across the border someplace and serve Jesus, that's what I do. Why? Because I know how much Jesus loves me, and I want to tell others about that. That there should be nobody off limits to you. A five-year-old, you ought to be able to get... Now, some of us, when we get older, it's harder to get on the ground. I understand that. But you ought to have a passion for them. May this five-year-old understand that Christ loves them. And then when they're 15, my dad used to tell a joke in my presence when I was 15. The right way to raise teenagers is when they're about 10 or 11, you stick them in a barrel with a hole in it that you can throw food into it. When they turn 15, you plug that hole up because teenagers are just difficult to work with. He was joking. He's a good <laughs> earthly father, okay? He didn't do that, although I'm, think, I'm sure there are times that he thought about doing that. Here's the idea, though. Maybe you feel like, I can't deal with teenagers. I bet you you can if you would pray and ask God to gift you and anoint you to deal with teenagers. Teenagers are wonderful people. When they're sleeping. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> I'm teasing. No matter what it is, God wants to use you that you could be an imitator of Christ, that others could see that and then grow in their relationship with Christ. But understand this. It comes from a heart that understands how much God loves you and how much he's forgiven you, and you can't help but share with others. That's what it comes from. Instead of you or I earning brownie points with God, it's my heart is on fire for Jesus. Jesus.